welcome to the Beers for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. Today our show's all about beef, which I think has to be about the best thing since man discovered fire. So today I'm going to be going through the best cuts out there and how to cook them. Now if you're holding your breath during a yoga pose for some quinoa, kale or even a mung bean and couscous gratin recipe, Sadly, today isn't your day, but check out our Beers for Bacon Facebook page a little bit later for some great vegetable side dishes. All jokes aside, JCVNs is back in the studio with a few big reds for beef, and today's gadget, it's actually a pretty nifty one, is being tested by Neil Tomes, who will also be sharing his secrets to making and cooking the perfect hamburger. The larger-than-life Mike Van Warmelo wraps things up, so to speak, with a fabulous beef wellington. And our go-to dough guy, Greg Wamichaud, gives us a few brief puff pastry lessons, just in case you want to make your own from scratch. It's the big round spaghetti O in our alphabet soup, so I'm talking tacos, tortas, and tamales for our book review, right after we chat to our resident man about grapes, J.C. Viennes. Good morning, Jason. All right, wines with beef. Where would you go, especially during summer? You remember what I said, if it goes together, it goes together, right? Yes. And for me, the best beef in the world, in my opinion anyway, from Argentina. No, on. El Zado. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> you don't like Argentinian beef? Oh, I like Argentinian beef, but I mean, it depends what you're having. I love Japanese beef too, and I mean, it's a completely different thing. Does that affect wine, by the way? So if you had something that was very, very rich, like say a, a Wagyu, compared to say a grass-fed beef, if it was the same cut, would you consider your wines differently? Absolutely, absolutely. It has to do with weight, it has to do with density, it has to do with aging also, but I am sure also the preparation, whether it's grilled or another way, mm. And the sauces that you're uh, uh, um, eating it with, for me, I never eat meat with any sauce whatsoever. I think, I think most purists do the same. You know, they enjoy beef just what it is. And if you go and eat at a, at a fine establishment, you trust the accompaniments that come with that. And it's quite difficult to get your wines right for it too, actually. There you go. And uh, in Argentina, I had great experiences. When we went there to visit Maria, I told you before, my wife, she's passionate about tango. So I get the chance to visit uh, uh, Argentina quite a, a few times, um, every so often. And uh, we had this incredible asado, uh, this huge barbecue. I mean, this is like a, a, a huge barbecue. And you have this meat roasting on the fire, the live fire, and then... In the middle of the restaurant, this is a thing that it's almost unbelievable. And over there, obviously, in Argentina, uh, the wine at this moment that is very uh, popular, uh, famous for Argentina, is Malbec. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's juicy. It's full-bodied. This is a wine that you, you can drink and enjoy with this meat, and it's perfect match. There is no problem with weight, density. It just makes... A perfect complement, and the juiciness of this wine is perfect with a, a nice juicy steak served rare, you know. And how much of that is about the whole barbecue element to it? Would you say pair a Malbec um, if you were having a tenderloin, for example? What yes, think? I think it would be it would be fine as well. Yes, absolutely. With Wagyu beef, um, it's a delicate meat, no? Uh, even though it's uh, rich and uh, uh, full, I think I would go for for wines that are aged with this kind of uh, uh, of meat and uh, wines that are also quite savoury, quite gamey in character. So an aged Bordeaux, even an aged Burgundy, but for sure an aged uh, Brunello. 
uh, from, uh, from Italy, for sure, an aged Alianico also, from Campania in the south of Italy. Beautiful wines, these wines with this kind of meat, I think. And, but they're all, all relatively heavy wines. What would you do in an environment like, say, Hong Kong, for example, where it's, you, you need to drink a lighter wine, especially during summer? Well, you know, going by the temperature of the restaurant, I was uh, having dinner last night. I think they should not worry so much about this because really about 17 degrees was <laughs> exactly so I think there's no problem there really All right so you think you don't think that really makes a difference so you would be quite quite comfortable to drink Shiraz's say during during summer For sure if my mood is into into this uh, in this wine absolutely of course on the way here it was quite warm quite humid and so I crave for something fresh but as I sit down for dinner of course I will probably start my my meal with a nice glass of sparkling wine, champagne, franciacorta, or maybe a white, uh, then I will be refreshed. But when the main course comes, for sure, I will switch to red, no matter what is the temperature outside. No, and if no. it's a typhoon, then I will have quite a few bottles of red. <laughs> How many of these do you have in stock? There you go. Now, I know that you prefer to choose your wines first and then find a meal to accompany your wine. Exactly. How do you do this uh, when you go somewhere and you're actually in the mood for a steak? Because you're, you, you know, it's a premeditated choice, really. You say, oh, let's go and have a steak or let's go and have a casserole or something like that, depending on how you feel. In fact, uh, the last two shows, we had the chicken and egg. Yes. Or the egg of the chicken, right? Mm-hmm. Which comes first? And then an argument with a friend of mine last week about food and wine um, pairing. And I actually asked the question, do we actually choose our wine based on the food we have selected? Or do we actually select the wine in subconsciously, as you said, and then we choose our food? Because I really believe the most important pairing is how you pair your mood with your food and your wine. And so for me... It's part of why I choose my wine before I choose my food. What am I in the mood for? Something, but, but, something but heavy, something rich, something comforting. I choose that. And then most likely the food will also be something comforting, something rich and heavy that I'm in the mood for, actually. But it wasn't the mood for the food already premeditated because you've decided to go to eat at that restaurant for a particular style, whether it's a steakhouse or Italian. In fact, you, you got me there because my <laughs> wife, she laughs at me all the time. I always go to the same restaurant and always order the same dish and then... So much so that I come to a, a restaurant and the staff, I'm not even sitting, they already know what I will order. Even, yes. even though you're difficult with wine, you're absolutely the best customer out there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thanks, JC. We'll catch up again next week. Just a quickie from my bookshelf today because I'd rather talk beef than talk books. Today's book, Tacos, Tortas and Tamales by Roberta Santibanez, I hope I've said that right, was one that I bought online, doing research for a project a few years back. I have to be honest and say that I know little about Mexican cuisine, having only been there once on a visa run when I lived in New Orleans. I also have found that the international representation of Mexican cuisine that's served in restaurants is more cantina-like, and there have always been places that are more about hammering back loads of tequila and partying than a serious approach to the food. Well, here in Hong Kong and in South Africa especially. That being said, I did try a few of the recipes from the book and they were easy to do. The flavours of the salsas were bang on, but I balked at the one for cooking pork with Coca-Cola. 
I get the whole caramelizing with sugar idea, but fizzy drinks with food are an absolutely no-no in my book. Between us, I do prefer the books by Rick Bayless, who I think is probably the best writer of Mexican cookbooks out there. But if you are looking for a fun book, and if you do get this, don't worry, you're not going to feel like you've wasted your pesos. Right, the books are done. Let's talk beef. In my mind, there's a lot of flavor and value to be found in the so-called secondary cuts like the flat iron, the flank, the rump, and even the hanging tender. These cuts give you the opportunity to experience beef a little differently when it comes to flavor and often at a great price. Now, don't get me wrong. A good ribeye is a great thing. But if you want brilliant beefy flavor, the secondary cuts are where it's at. Unfortunately, in Hong Kong, the restaurants, for the most part, favor the primal cuts, the ribeye, the strip loin, and, of course, the tenderloin. Porterhouse steaks and their smaller cousins, the T-bone, are also available, but generally they're limited to steakhouses. If you want to know why, it's because restaurants really like to play it safe. They choose cuts that have a little bit of flexibility in them, where the slight variations go unnoticed. And they certainly don't like making mistakes with high-cost items like beef, and that's for sure. In addition, most restaurants don't have a proper in-house butcher or a full-sized bandsaw, which makes it a chore to break down the bigger cuts especially when there's a bone involved. And it's a pity because steak, for some strange reason, is something that people prefer to eat at a restaurant. And I'm not sure if it's because people are afraid to cook it at home, thinking that it's difficult to cook, or if they believe that the quality of beef in supermarkets isn't worth the effort. It needs to change, and it's really simple to get it right, as long as you follow some simple rules. The most important part to cooking a good slab of beef at home is to know what you're cooking, how it reacts to heat, and then once it's done, how to carve it. I know that sounds pretty daft when I say it, but quite often supermarkets have different names for the cuts that you may be used to seeing, especially in cookbooks. Another rule that you should always remember is that you must carve against the grain, especially for the secondary cuts, like I mentioned the flank, the hanging tender, and the flat iron. These cuts need high heat, short cooking times, and really can't be cooked past rare to medium rare, or they'll be as tough as old boots. What you need to do as well is get yourself a heavy-duty cast iron pan. You season the beef well, and then just cook it to above rare, let it rest, and then enjoy it. Now, I could talk about steaks until the cows... Well, let's say that they don't come home. But rather than do that, let's head over to Beef and Liberty and get Chef Neil Tomes to share his secrets to beef patty perfection and to test our hamburger gadget. So obviously the quality of the meat is paramount. We use a grass bed um, because it's just simply better for you nutritionally. Um, and it does have a pronounced grassy flavour, which I appreciate. Fat content is really, really important. Okay, You're looking at around about 20 to 20 to 30% fat, um, depending on uh, also a personal taste, but it has to be minimum 20%. Okay, now we use three cuts of meat and we actually put in a little bit of extra extra fat. Basically, we'll use a chuck of brisket and a hanging tender and a little ad- additional body fat. We, we then mince, we mince our uh, patties twice. One is basically to, um, to keep out any sinew that actually might um, be left in the, in the meat. Um, and then the second one, which is a, a, a wider bore, um, 
actually creates more of a texture. So we go through the small ball first and then the wider ball. Uh, and then we put them into a uh, shape of a patty. And then probably the second most important point is the, the heat source that you're gonna cook them on. Now some people prefer uh, char grill. Um, we're leaning now towards like a flat top, but a really hot flat top, like 275 degrees centigrade. And the burger goes straight onto that hot plate um, and the beef uh, renders down and, and starts to crisp up the outer surface. Um, don't be shy with the salt. We need salt. It's gonna, some of it's gonna go away with the, onto the grill. Um, so put some on it. What we've got um, today is a uh, burger press, which looks like something that you find in sort of a, a doorway on Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's got uh, certain circles, like a twisty handle. Anyway, basically you open, you open it up and you can put the meat patty inside. You close it over and then you push the first ring down. What that does is actually squeeze, makes a hole inside the patty and it squeezes the meat up into the sides of the cylinder, therefore creating a space for you to stuff. Let's see if it's worked. Yes, it's kind of worked. I'll give it another little push to see if it can go any further. Okay, and then, now I'm gonna stuff this, so I'm just gonna stuff it with cheese, a couple of slices of raclette, pull the lever up, a couple of slices of raclette. I'm making the raclette into little circles, just by trimming the edges. The raclette goes in, and then I take another little blob of meat, uh, approximately half the size of the first patty. I stick that in, and then I twist the handle on this contraption, which then uh, makes the patty uh, a bigger dimension, so I can squeeze it down. And then we have the stuffed burger. It's actually quite easy to get out because it's made like one of those little um, uh, cake tins. It has a circle bottom that comes out. Okay, so let's cook it. And I'll come back later. holding itself, it's not splitting, it's not opening up. Actually, Jason, you bought me something that I would probably use. A bit gimmicky, but it's actually not bad. It does what it says on the box. I will give that 9 out of 10. That was the Burger King himself, Neil Tomes. Now, burgers are the ultimate eat-with-your-hands comfort type of food and are usually a great make-at-home meal when you're in the mood for something casual, but of course very tasty. Now, if you do enjoy entertaining at home, even if it's just to impress your partner on date night and want to bring out the big guns of beef, nothing beats the Beef Wellington, a great cut of tenderloin that's surrounded by mushrooms, encased in buttery puff pastry, and baked to golden brown. Let's get Big Mike to give us his take on the classic. 
Okay, so we would start with our beautiful tenderloin. I would then get a piece that is the centre cut so that you have a lovely even piece of meat. Obviously, you can do this dish as a large piece and slice individually for, the, for your friends or customers, whoever you're cooking for. Uh, what we want to do is also uh, tie the tenderloin up so that you can hold its beautiful cylindrical shape. You can uh, use some lovely butcher string. You can get at any of the good cook cookware shops these days. And just tie it gently. You don't have to uh, tie it till it cuts the meat in half, just so that you can hold its shape. Uh, then what we would do, uh, warm up a lovely heavy-based pan, season your meat. I like to, to use the lovely sea salt, some pepper, um, and just brown that meat in a beautiful, get that beautiful caramelisation that we, we love on the outside of a steak. Now you're not cooking it now, you're just taking it through to get that brownness on the steak. Now pull the meat out, set it aside on some, uh, on some paper and just let it rest. You want it to cool down. On the other side we're going to start traditionally with a good uh, beef wellington. You would use a, a mushroom duxelles which is basically a mix of mushrooms cooked down, developing those beautiful flavours, sautéed with a bit of butter, probably some nice fresh thyme, a little bit of garlic. I like to sauté some onion as well, give it, give it a sweetness to the dish. And I like to add in maybe some porcini, uh, whether it's a soaked to dry porcini and uh, you use the liquid, or you can buy some porcini powders now where you don't have to buy a huge amount. And you would cook those mushrooms down. I like to use a different mix of mushrooms, whether it's some giroles, some morels, even some uh, more of the Asian mushrooms, like the enoki mushrooms and shiitakes. Give yourself the different mushrooms to give it different textures because they cook differently. And then what we do, once that mushroom's cooked down and you've seasoned it lovely, you blend it so you get a smooth, not a smooth, but you, you've pureed these mushrooms up. And what this does is coat the beef, which we are then going to wrap in the pastry. Now, another addition, which can or cannot, uh, you don't have to use, but um, traditionally they may have used some pâté or even foie gras. Uh, a foie gras mousse has been used to richen up the dish. Um, this, is, this is optional. Um, but something that I would suggest to anyone at home doing is to wrap the beef uh, once it's coated in that mushroom mix, in either a beautiful herb crepe or I like to use something like a, uh, strips of uh, prosciutto or a parma ham just to, what you want to do is you want to wrap that beef. One, it protects the beef from overcooking. Two, it retains all the moisture in that dish. And I think the, the addition of parma ham gives it a lovely seasoning quality because you've got the saltiness of the ham. So now that you've... Uh, You've let your beef cool down, you've made your mushrooms, you've got your lovely pieces of uh, parma ham ready. You can then make yourself a pastry. Now, there are uh, two schools of thought. Some people like to use a full puff pastry. Other chefs have used what they call a rough puff, where it's quicker to make. And uh, it comes up quite good. Now, this is uh, whether you're a purist or not. I think you can, you can go with the rough puff and it's quicker and it's something people can do at home. That being said, there are some lovely pastries you can then buy at uh, good supermarkets or some of the, the more upmarket food outlets. Uh, they have beautiful, ready-prepared pastries. So for home, 
you can make it easier on yourself because pastry is a is an art in its own. And what you would do is roll it roll out your lovely piece of pastry. You don't want it too thin, but you don't want it too thick either because you're going to cook this with the meat inside. If the pastry doesn't cook, it will be soggy. Um, and this is not as nice as the idea of putting pastry is to get that lovely flaky crust. Um, now, so you lay, lay out your, your pastry. I like to brush it with a little bit of egg yolk. And then you lay on your beautiful uh, prosciutto. And then your cooled meat would be packed with the mushroom duxelles. You would season and then roll this in... Oh, by the way, don't let me forget, cut the string off before you've added <laughs> the mushrooms. <laughs> it's not so nice to eat. <laughs> anyway, so you've taken the string off, you've rolled it in the mushroom, and then you've got your prosciutto, your egg-washed uh, pastry. You then roll your pa meat uh, tenderloin in that pastry. Now, I like to roll it so that the seam is at the, what will be the base of the dish, so that you don't have a line in your dish. You, your presentation side is uh, lovely and clean and smooth. Then, in a preheated oven, you've heated up... I like to heat up a, a quite a heavy base dish. I like... If, if you've got a, these thin aluminium dishes at home, they, they're OK, but I like to... Uh, by myself, I, I've invested in one dish that's quite heavy based, like a cast iron or a quite a thick steel tray, because you want to get some heat into it. And something when cooking the pastry, I like to put the, the tray in the oven first, get it hot, bring it out, and have everything ready. I put some silicon paper or a sil silicon mat down, and I put the beef, uh, the beef rolled in the pastry on this warm dish. Now, what this does is help cook the base. Um, if it's the bane of the, the Wellington if you don't have that heat at the bottom your pastry won't cook and you'll end up with a soggy soggy, uh, soggy beef Wellington uh, you would then brush the top with some more egg wash to get a golden colour on your, your pastry I like to just prick it about three or four times with a fork just to allow some of the steam to come out because when you're cooking pastry if there's too much steam inside it will keep the inside moist and the pastry won't cook into that beautiful flaky... Uh, we're using puff pastry here, so you want it golden and flaky and the butteriness that goes with it. Uh, you would cook it oh, possibly for 20 to 25 minutes. Because you've already seared off your tenderloin, you're just waiting for the pastry to cook and you're just waiting to warm the meat through. Now, most of the beef wellingtons are uh, served quite rare. Invest yourself in a little electronic thermometer that way you can test the middle of the beef should get to about 36 37 degrees celsius and then you'll know it's at medium rare and as long as your pastry is lovely and golden and brown you're ready to go bring it out and serve and enjoy you are so beautiful 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 beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. Chef Mike Van Warmelo on the numbers with the Wellington. And if time is against you 
as he said, store-bought puff pastry will work. Now, cooking is about the doing and, of course, the eating. But if you do have the time and you want to make your own buttery-rich rough puff pastry, it really is much easier than you think. Let's ask our resident baker and expert on all things flour, Chef Gregoire Michaud, for a few puff pastry tips. So, rough puff pastry. Rough puff pastry. Uh, it's what we call uh, uh, fast or quick or blitz puff pastry. As I grew up with, we, we call it the Dutch Dutch method puff pastry. So basically it's the same ingredients of a normal puff pastry, except that you uh, you mix, uh, so you, you actually mix the, the butter inside as uh, big chunks, like uh, uh, three to four centimeter uh, cubes so you mix the, the fat directly in the dough and uh, you, you mix it roughly so you don't want to uh, mix that fat into the into the dough you need to have the cubes here and there and then uh, it's important that your fat has a proper temperature so not, not too soft otherwise it dissolves and um, after what you will do is uh, simply um, Flatten, flatten the dough with the fat, so the, the mix. You fold it, uh, I mean the, the, the folding, uh, so you laminate it a little bit with uh, flour, and uh, the folding is actually depends on what you want to achieve, but if you give it uh, three single fold and one double fold, it's plenty, even, even too much. Because when you do rough puff pastry, you're not expecting to have a the ultimate layering of a milfoil. You're gonna have a rough, uh, um, a rough uh, uh, layering, right? So you you can do three three single fold, and then uh, you keep it in the fridge to rest, so the the dough uh, relaxes. Maybe at least I would say two to three hours. Then you roll it out, and then you do your pie, sausage roll, and, and so on. As you heard from Gregoire Michaud, making pastry yourself really isn't that hard. As always, use the best flour you can get and always buy fantastic butter. Remember to check out the recipes on our Facebook page. That's Beers for Bacon on RTHK3. But before then, let's get out the soup ladle. O is the letter in today's alphabet soup, so I thought we'd kick it off with the O for omelette, the French name for the hanger steak. O is also for the baby beef dish of veal shank called osso buco, traditionally served a la milanese with saffron risotto and gremolata. And because we're almost O for out of time, let's finish with Opa Kapaka, a.k.a. Hawaiian Pink Snapper. That's it for today. Let's catch up again. Same time, same place, next week. Bye-bye for now. From BC to Milford land, you can squeeze my teats by hand.